This is Unpacking Design, a podcast to help designers of all kinds better themselves in career, business, and life. Join me, Michael Valley, and my co-host, Tim Ong, as we unpack the problems designers face every day. Welcome to Season 2 of Unpacking Design, Life Lessons to My Younger Self. Each episode this season is a raw and unfiltered dive into what we wish we knew years ago. Since we can't turn back the clocks for ourselves, we hope that these masterclass discussions will help you on your own journey. Enjoy. Hey, welcome back to Unpacking Design. This is the eighth episode in a 12-part series called Life Lessons to My Younger Self, where Mike and I will each be sharing six lessons that we've learned in our lives and careers so far. In the previous lesson, Mike talked about burnout, what it is, how it feels, ways to avoid or overcome it, and more. So make sure you check out all the previous lessons in this series to get the most out of this series that we've started. Today, I'm going to be talking about my lesson to my younger self, which is having a financial plan. This is a really big one to me because when I think about having a financial plan, it's something that I would have never actually thought about when I was younger, going through college, and soon after when I was early in my career. The first mini lesson in this episode is going to be figuring out where you currently stand with your personal finances. The reason why I'm phrasing it that way is because when I first graduated, I didn't take the time to figure out where I was financially. I just started working, making a little bit of money, and trying to figure out what I was going to do with it. I know a lot of my peers always tell me, or they used to tell me, that I should just spend it in the ways that make me happy. I actually don't want to suggest that for anyone else because I don't think that that's the appropriate advice that anyone should get. Instead, the way that I like to start is to know where I am right now. That way I can actually plan ahead for my future. So the first thing is I would highly recommend to my younger self to go through these series of questions and then try my best to answer them. How much debt do you currently have? How much interest do you currently pay for those debts? How are those debts holding you back from pursuing a bigger goal and dream in your life? And how can you start paying off these debts? The reason why I would start with all of those questions is because it starts to give you an idea of where you actually are in terms of your net worth. What are you actually worth right now in terms of all your assets, what you have in your savings? and when you subtract your debts from it. In a lot of cases, most people who just graduated from college have taken out a significant amount of loans and are starting behind the start line. When I say that, I'm referring to this idea that if you started at zero, where everything you have and own subtracted from the debts you have would equalize at zero so that you start with no positive and no negative. You're just starting at an equal playing field. Most people don't ever start there. There are people who have had their parents pay for them to go through college and then gave them some money to start. Then you have people who didn't have money to pay for college, so they had to take out student loans to to afford it. Most people fall in the latter portion where you graduate from an undergraduate program with over $30,000 in student loans, a master's program with over $50,000 to $60,000 in student loans, and a PhD of $90,000 and more. And so you start thinking about these numbers and you start to wonder, well, Tim, why does that really matter? Well, if you know that you have, let's say, $100,000 of student loans, where, where a lot that's actually a number that a lot of my physical therapy friends graduated with. And when you're around that number, and you start working, and you know that that number is accruing 4% interest every year, that means you're paying out of your salary every year, just in interest alone, a certain amount of money. And that becomes a limitation to what you can do in the future. Because student loans, just they don't just die with you. You can't apply for bankruptcy and get rid of a student loan. They get carried over and follow you everywhere you go in life. And in some cases, It can actually follow you after you die. Because if you pass away and you had student loans, sometimes those creditors will then chase after the people in your family and have them pay it for you. 
So understanding all these debts that you have, including credit card debt and all these other places like car loans and things like that, will help you start to get a better understanding of how much you actually have to pay every month at a minimum, because now that comes out of your actual income. So for me, I always think about these debts and that's where I start. And then I start thinking about how I can pay them. And these are two different ways that I found to work for most people. The first way of paying off the debts, and this is advice for myself, is that if you're not good at making consistent and larger payments towards your debts, start off by focusing on the smallest ones and paying those ones off first. It gives you the sense of relief and it motivates you to continue paying off more loans because as you see those loans getting taken away and taken care of, you feel that motivation to get rid of all the other ones. What I mean by that is most people have different debts at different sizes. Credit card debts are usually the lowest amount, but they carry the most percentage rates for their interest. The next one is student loans, which are usually broken into different bits and pieces. When I graduated, I had loans at different interest rates because every year the interest rates changed. And then when people have mortgages, it's usually a lower interest rate for those. So when I think about the ways that I would pay it off, if I, if I wasn't good at making these consistent larger payments, I would just start off by paying the smallest ones off first because they're easy to take care of. If you're actually good at making payments towards your debts and putting more towards it, I actually recommend paying off the ones with the highest interest rate. That's the way that I went through my journey of paying off my debts. I focus on the ones with the highest interest rates so that I can save more money in the long run, but I stayed consistent and paid off all of my loans as quick as I could. And that's where I am right now. So the first lesson here is to figure out where you currently stand with your personal finances. And once you do that, start, start to figure out your plan for actually paying them off. I'm curious, Mike, for you, in terms of how you've paid and focused on your debts, where did you start and where are you right now? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting topic that you've kind of brought to the table here, Tim. And it's one that I think <clears throat> I've struggled a lot with finances before. And I think that there are a lot of people listening to this who are probably in the same boat as I was. So I hope that uh, me kind of sharing this helps people as well. And I think, Tim, I've noticed that in the time that I've known you, you've been very good with finances. I would say I would give that to you. I would say that of the people I know in my life, you at least have a handle on what you're trying to do and you've set goals that properly allow you to um, work on things in your financial life and to sort of build yourself up that way. And I don't think that I've been very good at that. I think I've been actually pretty horrible at that. So I would, I, I distinctly remember when I was in high school, I had a job. I had a job that I had at like a mini mart uh, you know, after school or whatever. And I was working and I, I knew that I needed to get money for myself. And I've had a, I had a job through college pretty much. Actually, one of them was at Wendy's as a, as a grill man. So that was fun. Um, and then I had internships that were uh, paid internships that were for architecture. As time went on, I was doing more for architecture and working and things like that. But I was never questioning anything, really, any any deeper than a surface level. Oh, I have money in the bank, so I guess I'm okay. And I think that especially as I was going to college, I remember because I didn't have a handle on the kinds of things that I was getting myself into. I went to Syracuse University where at the time the tuition was something between $35,000 and $40,000 a year. And that's just the tuition. So fortunately I was a straight A student. I got lots of scholarships and transformed that debt into something that was better than, you know, 200 plus thousand dollars, but still not very good. And I am still sort of reeling from that debt. I feel like I have control over it. Maybe, what is it? It's about 13 years after I graduated. But 
it's very intimidating and it's especially intimidating when I think there's a lot of people out there who go into something, they get college debt, they get credit card debt, they get something, they don't really even know what they're doing. You know, I, I kind of question sometimes whether or not it was the right financial move for me at 18 to decide that I wanted to go to an institution that would be giving me, uh, you know, loans for the foreseeable future at that magnitude. And I, we can get into that or not, but I think that that's a, that's a big factor for a lot of people. There's shame that I had after I, I got out of school of having so much debt and not really knowing what to do with it. And I felt like I got a job that while it was still in the field that I got the degree for, I was very much unable to pay for it adequately. My, my student loans were like payments of like upwards of $600 a month when I started. And it's, it's, it's just like, not, (laughs) it's not a fun feeling. It's not a, an enjoyable feeling. And it's something where I was able to justify it to myself. Like, okay, well, I I got a good education. I, I enjoyed the time that I spent. I felt like I spent it well, but it's a real thing. And I think it's a thing that I'm glad we're talking about it today because I have become more financially especially in the last year or so, I've become more financially aware of what things are and how to find more information on those things and not to be scared of my finances. I think very commonly, uh, sort of like when people don't like going to the dentist or like going to the doctor, they don't like talking about their finances. And I know you're going to talk about other things like negotiation and things in today's conversation and jobs, but you know, for debt in general, um, I think initially I just wasn't really even paying attention. And then over time, I realized that unless I wanted to be chained to the debt forever, I needed to really understand what my options were, understand more about finances in the, in the, in general. Um, And I, I know that you're, you're coming at this to, to set the stage, Tim, but even just reading things, you know, like uh, recently I've read books like napkin finance by Tina Hay. Um, She has a really good site called napkinfinance.com where she breaks things down in like diagram form that's really palatable to understand. Or another book that I read recently was called Rich Bitch by Nicole Lappin. Uh, She's a financial analyst and and somebody who talks a lot about this from a very uh, bubbly, fun way. And I think that's what I needed to inject into the way I learned about it. It needed to be fun. It needed to be engaging because I think finance, you'll probably agree, Tim, in a lot of ways for most people is not fun and it's it's shameful or it makes you feel shame a lot. And I think as soon as you get past some of those things and realize that you have options and you understand more about it, it becomes easier to kind of digest. Yeah. And and there's a point that you made that I really wanted to hone in on a little bit more. And it was this idea that you felt as if, or you currently feel as if your debts and your financial situation starts to become a chain that holds you back from doing more. And I wanted to talk about that idea because that's the reason why I focus so much on paying off my debts sooner rather than later. There are so many friends of mine who are doing great things in their lives, but one of the things that always comes out later, and these are older friends of mine, is that When they say something like, you know, I really want to try starting my own business. I really want to try just taking a year off and doing anything I want. I really want to spend more time with my family. And they start talking about all these other aspirations that they have. Whenever I ask them, well, why aren't you trying to do it then? What's holding you back? It always comes down to, well, you know how much debt I have to pay? How much interest accrues every month? How much I actually have to start my month with below zero? And that's the reason why I think it's important for all of us as designers to start thinking about our personal finances sooner rather than later. Some people plan for it when it's too late. And that isn't a plan. That's a reaction. So for me, when I think about personal finances and knowing where I currently stand, it's important because it also helps you know what you can and can't do as of right now. Not everyone could just jump ship and start a business with $200,000 of debt, right? Because now you have to pay that off at some point. And every month you're obligated to pay it. So when you think about all of these debts that compile, it's important to know where you stand. When I first graduated, I had $50,000 of debt. I had a car that I bought. 
And when you add everything up, I had about $60,000 of debt. Doesn't sound like much, but the reason why I ended up there is because I applied for as many scholarships as I could, just like Mike did, and I got as much as I could. All of the debts that I accrued were from studying abroad because all of those didn't have scholarships. So when I graduated, I set out on a mission to pay it off as quick as I could. Everyone's going to give you deferring opinions, and this is mine. The opinions I got from people to me was, hey, Tim, you shouldn't just pay off your debts as quick as you could. Why don't you just put that money and invest it? Why don't you just spend it on buying things you really want? Like, Isn't there something you want today that you can just go and get? You should just do that. And then the way that I always saw it and the way that I still see it is, well, why not pay off all of these debts and get rid of all of the things that could potentially hold me back from more in the future? And if I did this in the right way, then I could also start saving enough money to eventually just take a year off or to eventually just do what I want to do. I don't ever want to have to work because I have to do it to pay off a debt. That just doesn't make sense to me. So where I stand today, years after figuring out my personal finances and where I stood, is that I have $40,000 left on paying off my mortgage. That's the only debt I have left at the age of 31. And I just turned 31. So by the time I turn 32, that should be taken care of. And for me, that's an exciting moment. That's a moment to celebrate because it means I have no debts to my name. And that is the moment that I know I could start saving and getting to a point in my life where I could catch up to people who are ahead of me, but to also just do the things that I really enjoy doing and find that freedom in my life. And that leads to the next lesson here. The next mini lesson is to determine your values and live within them. Because when you start to know where you stand right now with all of your debts and all the things that you have to pay off, the biggest part of trying to have a career, saving up money and paying off your debts, but also enjoying your life comes down to this mini lesson. You have to know what your values are. It's another way of saying to live within your means. I prefer to say that you should focus on your values because it removes the limiting connotation that living within your means has. When I think about living within my means, I feel as if the way that I live is going to be determined by how much money I have and how much of it I actually earn. Instead, when I determine my values in my life, it actually helps me focus most of my decisions and work towards fulfilling those decisions. Living within the values feels a lot better emotionally, physically, and spiritually because it's not based on a quantitative number. Decisions become a vehicle towards fulfillment by knowing what my values are and having the power to support them. The difference between living within your means, which is what most people will tell you, and to determine your values and live within them is that all the decisions you're making when you know your values all support them. And those values might turn out to, to be something you never expected. It might be that what you actually value is to learn how to cook so that you can always be the one making your own meals. You might enjoy that whole process of cooking. You might actually find out that you like a minimalist lifestyle. And to fulfill that lifestyle, it's not about buying a lot of things. It's about giving up on a lot of things and questioning the functional parts of your life and the things that support it. You might actually find that you don't like eating out that what you actually enjoy is just being with friends. And so once you start identifying all of these things, you'll start to find ways that you can actually save money because by spending the money, you're not actually fulfilling these things that you value. So for me, I think about that mini lesson all the time. What is it that I value in my life? How do I support those values? And does it actually require money to fulfill them? Or can that money be repositioned to something else to support those values even more? Because if I know that I value something as broad as getting financial independence, getting financial freedom, I'm going to spend my money in such a way that allows me to get there. 
But if I value something else that provides fun, excitement, and all that stuff in my life, I also know that I need to budget for those things. But when I know what those things are, I can actually work towards spending the money that I should be spending on that stuff without feeling like I'm being held back, without feeling like I'm spending money on something that I actually don't care about. So for me, once I know those values, it also helps me with this idea of ego, right? Most people are making purchases because they want to show something off, because they want to show that they have something. But if those values aren't actually your values, then there's no reason to make those purchases. And when you start to practice this idea, you start building the habit of not being materialistic for the sole purposes of putting your ego ahead of you, but instead for having a position on the things you're buying because you believe in something about it, whether it's because the company supports something in the world, if it's about climate change, if it's about something that you personally love about them. So now it becomes something that is more valuable in all senses of the term. I'm curious to know what you think about that, Mike, in in terms of living, determining your values and living within them. Yeah, I think it's it's a poignant way of thinking about finances because anybody who's really listening to this or most people that are listening to this probably didn't grow up wealthy, right? They didn't come from a place that is inherently like things are resources are provided to them and they don't really have to think about them. Right. I think the, the vast majority of people have to think about where they spend their money, how they invest it, how they earn it, what they do with it. Right. And I think coming at it from a place of identifying a person's values makes a lot of sense because it's something that is true to the person Um, But it's also something that can kind of help you grow as an individual over time. So as an example, I think that our values change as we get older. And I think inherently we are the same person, but we go through so many life changes that the values that we have get adapted to conform with whatever that situation is in our life and those experiences that we have. When I was in college, I was just concerned with going out on a, you know, on a, on the weekend and seeing a movie and enjoying my time, you know, with my then girlfriend, now wife, and just <clears throat> experiencing life. Right. I didn't really care about my retirement. I didn't really care about financial quote unquote freedom. It was more, what am I doing this week? And what am I doing next week? And what am I doing today? And what am I doing tomorrow? And my values were different then than they are now where I'm looking at how am I retire? How am I going to retire? What do I want that to look like? What do I want my day-to-day to be now? What can I allow it to be? What can I budget for? And I, th- I liked what you were talking about before where you're, you're relating the values to sort of how you adapt um, the choices that you make financially. So I think about this quote that a lot of people are probably familiar with, a penny saved is a penny earned by Ben Franklin. And I don't necessarily think of it in the literal sense of like, okay, well, if you don't spend it, then you save it. I think of it as having that control over where your money goes and and how you how you utilize it, how you spend it, how you invest it is important because so many of the opportunities that we have are tied to how we spend money. And it's, it's kind of wild for me to even say that because I, I don't think that I have always believed that that's the case. I think that I've come at it from a non-financial place before. And I think now that we're talking about it a little bit, it's, it's, it's very powerful to realize how much freedom and control, uh, personal control you have over your life, you have when you have financial freedom. So I think coming at it from your values of, you know, I don't have kids right now, Tim, I know you don't have kids, but like if if we were parents, that would even be another set of values that would probably be informing the way we're making financial decisions, whether it's college funds or things like that. And 
adding these factors, I think, into our lives and questioning where our values are in our lives, I think is really helpful to understand our financial situation. Yeah. And when you think about how I'm laying this entire mini lesson series to my younger self, you'll start to see that it becomes a formula that you can follow so that you can get yourself out of debt, but also get to a point in your life where you do have freedom to make choices that you want to make and live a life you want to live. So the first mini lesson was to figure out where you currently stand with your personal finances. And I started there because now you know what you owe, you know what you're worth, and you know where you want to be. Once you have that, and you have your values, and you start to live within them, hopefully what that will show you is that you can save money by letting go of the things that you don't value, letting go of the materialistic part of life that everyone is pushed into. How many of us have something in in our houses that we see every day that we made a big purchase on but never use? I know one of the most recent ones is a few years ago. I bought a record player and I bought a bunch of records from estate sales in my neighborhood. I have used that record player for one week when I first got it, and it's been sitting there collecting dust for the past couple of years. So now I'm very in tune with what I buy because I ask myself, why is it that I want this thing? How am I going to use it? And what's the plan for its future? And when I know that, I can then align it or see that it's unaligned with my vision for my values. And that makes the decision not to make that purchase so much easier. And that $30 or $100 that I would have spent gets repositioned to all of the loans and the debts that I have. Because to me, I'd rather not have that money sit around and not accumulate any more money or to have it sit around where my interest can now take advantage and, and force me to pay more. So from that, it actually leads to the next mini lesson, which is to learn how to invest and start as soon as possible. When I talk about it, it relates back to my story of when I first started working. I had no idea how to invest my money. I think a lot of people start there, especially if you grew up in a household that was low income, where this wasn't even part of any discussions or where finances were always kept a secret by your parents. Although the term gets thrown around all the time, and by that I'm referring to the term investing, the things that it embodies is so vast. And for me, it just felt confusing. Every time someone's had to invest, I always had questions like, what's the difference between a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA? How do you invest in the stock market? What's a bond and how do I get one? When I see movies that depict someone buying a bond back in the cowboy days of America, it was always this like physical piece of paper that you got from someone. Same thing with stocks, right? You have these slips from AT&T back in the 40s or whatever it was. I always thought that that's what it meant to own a part of a company, that you physically get a piece of paper. It's actually not. And I know that these questions for people who are versed in financial planning and investing are probably things that you're hearing from me and saying, wow, Tim really doesn't know anything. But hey, you have to be humble, right? If you don't know something, you have to be willing to ask these questions. And I ask these questions to everybody and I'm not I don't ever feel like I'm stupid for asking these questions because each time I ask, you see everyone's ears perk up around me because they want to know the answers. And then if they don't want to know the answers because they have the answers, you can see them jump to try and help. So remember to ask about anything related to finances and investing that you really want to know more about but make sure that you also do your due diligence and find the right people to answer it without forcing you to pay them or forcing you into a position where they can take advantage of your money. So from all of that, I would say to find the resources that will help you learn more about the different methods of investing. Personally, for me, I recommend a book that I recommended to you before, Mike. It's from Tony Robbins, and it's called Money Master the Game, which is a very long book. But The book goes over the different types of investments that you can make, and he also dives deep into big ideas about financial well-being. There are terms like financial independence, financial freedoms, and a bunch of others that he breaks down and talks about what each one means. 
so that you can start to identify where you want to be in the long run. I don't know if all I want is financial freedom. I might actually want more than that. But he lays it out in such a way where you can start to identify these. It's going to help you reframe what you originally thought you knew about financial planning and goals. And it's also going to help you determine the investment strategies that best fit your risk tolerance. Some of us hate seeing money loss. So maybe in that case, you'll end up going towards the more conservative option. Some of us love risk because we think we're young and we think we're going to be in the market for a long time. So we want to take more risk. If you start to understand what that means between stocks, bonds, and other types of investments like cryptocurrency and others, you can now start to pick where you might fall, identify your own plan that fits your own needs, and jump into the market and start investing early. Over time, the investments will hopefully grow and you'll begin to see how setting money aside can actually lead to opportunities in the future. And this is a really good area for me to just note that I always think about my finances today as something that I'm trying to work towards to get financial freedom. And to do that, I've done calculations to reach something that you'll probably research and find called FIRE. And what it stands for is financial independence, retire early. The idea of that is to invest your money and continually invest your money until you reach a certain amount in investments that's liquidable, meaning it's not held up in a retirement account where you have to wait until you're at 65 years old or older to retire. Instead, you work towards saving X amount of money today. And once you get to that amount, every year, it's going to accrue interest where you're getting paid it out um, where you're getting paid out from those companies either monthly or quarterly through dividends, or it's going to increase in value so you can slowly sell some off over time and always have enough money every year to pay for all your needs. For me, that number comes out to about $750,000 in 2021. If I had $750,000 saved up and invested, I could live a life off of the dividends I'd make from the research that I've done in passive investing strategies with index funds to actually get about thirty to 45000 on an average year, which will be more than enough to pay for how I'm living now. Because if you go back to the previous mini lesson about determining your values and living within them, you'll start to find your trend for how you actually live and be able to, to tell yourself and figure out from researching your own budgets how much you actually spend in a year. I found that my fiance and I spend about $28,000 a year. And if you rolled in health insurance, it would probably be about $20,000. That's 10,000 each. So we have to hit around 35 to 40K a year to be able to live without having to work. To me, that's something to work towards because I'd rather be able to retire earlier than to wait until I'm in my old ages and can't do anything to retire. So that's what I'm working towards right now. And I'm doing that concurrently with paying off my mortgage, which is the last thing that I have to pay. I'm curious, Mike, if you've ever thought about doing this for yourself, figuring out your own means for getting to financial independence or to getting to financial freedom and how you originally approached it versus how you see it and how you're approaching it now. Yeah. So I think the one thing that I want to start with is something that you said earlier about being humble with, with the kinds of things that you're learning and as you're going. And it reminds me of it, this, uh, this book called Mindset by Carol Dweck. And in it, one of the things that she talks about is this growth mindset. It's kind of one of the main ideas of the book where uh, as like a, a tool or a strategy, she'll say uh, just to add yet the word yet to the end of um, uh, sort of a limiting belief. So as an example, I can't do this yet. This doesn't work yet. It doesn't make sense yet. I don't get it yet. I'm not good at this yet. And that's kind of what I think about throughout a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here, Tim, where I think for me, it was 
a lot of that limiting belief for many years where I really, I didn't, honestly, I hadn't read, read uh, Carol Dweck's book yet and uh, no pun intended. And I didn't think that I could be somebody who was aware of finances. I just didn't think that that was something that was within me. So I avoided it for many years. And, you know, you're talking about how you're on this uh, set financial path. And I think what's interesting about the difference in our lives is like you're 31 and you have a house and you have these these things and your situation is very different than mine right now where I'm renting. I don't have property. I'm probably a little bit behind in terms of how far I've come in relation to you based on my situation and yada, yada, yada. It's, um, and being 36, I have different things that I'm thinking about where I don't have as long of time as you do theoretically in our lives to let things compound. So I'm making different decisions based on that. You know, it's only a couple of years, but it's still, you know, the magic of compounding interest and things is a real thing. So even those five years put you way ahead of the game more than me in some instances. But I think the thing that I would tell anybody who's, who's sort of talking about things now is within the last year, I've just, as I mentioned with those books that I uh, talked about earlier, I'm just starting to get a sense of it now, but it's, it's not that I, I feel like you can really learn about this kind of stuff and get into it and um, find a way to make it more relevant to your life. And with uh, the investing and how I, I kind of set aside my money now, I had to get through that first couple of steps and the first many lessons that Tim talked about to his younger self first before I could even really think about investing. You know, I, personally, for me, I, I know that there are some debts that I will not be able to get rid of quickly. And there are other debts that I can get rid of faster than others. So that it gives me at least maybe not full financial freedom, but it gives me enough freedom to have money to play around with and to have that peace of mind to get out of, you know, the first thing I got rid of was credit card debt. And then the next thing I got rid of was um, some of my student loan stuff. And then the next thing I'm getting rid of is uh, things like my car payment. And then, you know, like I have this list that I've created over those first couple steps that Tim's talking about. And now, just like just now, I'm starting to feel more comfortable about how I can invest, where I'm investing, what kinds of things I'm investing in. And, I think that the the message that I would just want to impart on to what you're talking about here, Tim, is that like, yes, you don't want to wait until you're like 65 to be thinking about these things, but there's also no like, like as long as you're thinking about them at all, I feel like that's powerful just in of itself, especially if you're, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably doing at least the first step correctly. Yeah. You know, when I, whenever I think about the way that I'm laying all of this out, the one thing that I really want to make clear is that I'm a totally unique person and you're a totally unique person, Mike, and everyone else is too. I grew up in a lifestyle where it was extremely minimal, where we always, my family has always had our belts tightened. We've only lived within our means from the moment that I was born. That's why it was important for me, instead of living within them, to figure out what am I about? What do I really want to achieve and what am I working towards and figuring out how to get there? Because when you have a clear vision of what you want in the future, that helps you get the motivation you need to kick yourself in the butt and say, you know what, it's time for me to actually think about how I can get there. Because if I want to not work for someone else my whole life, then I need to figure out how I'm either going to start my own business or how to get to a point where I don't even need a business to support me because I've saved enough for my own means to support me. And whenever we watch any TV shows or movies where we see a, a very wealthy family depicted in that film, they're always talking with a financial planner, talking about how to make their money, make more money for them and all these things. All of that is based on reality in some way and form. And that's what really got me to do this research because I started finding trends in all of these films where everyone was saying the same kinds of things. Aside from you know doing bad illegal things, a lot of it came down to having the right financial plan, having someone or something guide where your money was going, 
and actually start to create money with your money. What that actually means isn't what people think it means. It doesn't mean you take a dollar and now it splits to $2 and now you're rich. What it means is if your money's sitting in your bank and you're not touching it, it's actually just deflating in value. Whether you want to believe that or not, it's deflating in value. I'll give a very simple example of how that works. When I was five years old, back in 1995, I could buy a crybaby bubblegum candy for five cents. Today, if you want to buy that same bubblegum candy, just one piece of it, it's 25 cents. When you think about money in the bank, that's what's happening to your money. If it's just sitting there and you're sitting on it, or if it's under your mattress and you're just trying to keep it in there, it's going to start losing its value. So how do you keep its value? You put it into a market where the market can, in, can inflate as, the, as money is, in, is changing its value. And so over time, when your money's in a market too, there are different investment vehicles that you can find for yourself. My strategy for investing comes from Tony Robbins' book. And I, we're not giving anyone advice here. This is just my strategy. I put my money into different index funds, which track different types of companies. For example, one of the more known ones is the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is invested in 500 different companies. They are the top 500. Those companies have been vetted and researched. And if a company is doing bad, they drop out of the S&P 500 and a new one gets added in. That fund tracks those companies. In my mind, if all 500 companies failed tomorrow, that means our world is collapsing because there is no way that the top 500 companies are going to fail forever, especially with a fund like that. I know I'm probably wrong if you really analyze it from an analyst perspective, but I just logically speaking, it doesn't make sense to me that company would fail. So I look for vehicles like that to put my money into because I found that the trajectory of a fund like that over the duration of time that I'm invested in for the long run have only done well. They haven't done terrible. And as long as I don't pull my money out at the wrong time, I'm fine. And so as you start to look through all of these mini lessons and you think about ideas like that, you start to see how you can get out of debt and how you can start building a future financially. So going over the mini lessons and how they all relate, the first one was to figure out where you stand with your, your personal finances right now, and then figure out your values and start living within them. When you do that, you can start paying the extra money towards your debts and or investing that money, which is the next mini lesson. It was to learn how to invest and start as soon as possible. I actually started off with the traditional IRA, and now I have a Roth IRA. And I'm, my goal is to try and max both of them out. That's just my goal. doesn't have to be anyone else's, but for me, that's the goal that I set. And the other thing I'm doing is I recently started a brokerage account where I can invest money today and I can sell stocks and sell bonds if I ever need that money right now without any penalties from any of these other accounts. And then the next lesson to help build on this idea of paying off your debts and building towards a future is to figure out how to make more money. I know you can focus on side hustles and things like that, but that's not part of this lesson here because side hustles will go in, uh, into its own area and in so much depth that I didn't want to bring it to the table here. Instead, I wanted to focus on this from the perspective of most people being an employee to somebody else, in which case you need to know how to negotiate. And that's the mini lesson here. It's to practice negotiating. I used to think negotiating was about pushing an employer or a client for more money or to give people who work for us less money. I remember when I first started negotiating, I was so anxious and nervous that I could only focus on how much of a raise I was being offered. I felt as if I needed to respond right away. And all we ended up talking about was how much more money I was going to get at that time. That's it. I couldn't remember anything else from that conversation. And I couldn't think of anything beyond how much they were telling me. I never understood why my employer thought that the number they were giving me actually reflected the value that I provided to the firm. In fact, I didn't even know if the partner at the time knew what I did in general. Isn't that sad? 
I didn't even have it in me, the courage or the confidence to ask that question. Hey, what do I do every day? What do you see me doing? And what value does that provide your firm? I never asked those questions. Lastly, I didn't even know what my own skills and experiences were truly worth, nor what I really, really wanted. And this is really important for negotiating. I felt as if I walked away from that particular meeting where we negotiated as a loser. Yes, I might have gained a small raise, but not knowing why and how that number was determined caused more confusion in me than it did excitement. I know now that negotiating is actually about both parties walking away, feeling as though they got something, feeling as if they were able to voice their perspective on the deal that's on the table and that they were listened to by the other party and vice versa. It's actually about the conversations that we have, bringing our part of the deal to the table and figuring out the right balance. That way, both parties walk away feeling as if they just attained something greater. Today, I know that my values aren't actually tied to how much I make. It's actually tied to how much time I have to pursue my own dreams. So my goal for negotiating today is different. My goal for negotiations in the beginning was focused on getting more money because I knew that more money was going to help me focus on attaining my financial goals sooner. That's where it relates to all of these many lessons that we're talking about today, getting more money. Now, for me, since I'm at a different financial place in my life, it's not about more money. It's actually to get more time for myself because I'm in a place in my life where everything else is in order. My finances are in order and other things are there. Finances have become secondary. Time, to me, is my primary concern. And so when I think about this idea of negotiating, it's important as it relates to everything we're talking about, because if we know how to keep our costs low by living within our values, now we can start investing money and paying off our debts. To do that quicker, the path to getting us there is to negotiate and get more money. As you start to get more and more money and you pay these things off, you can start to then trade money for time and say, you know what? What if I can get more paid time off every year? What if I can take every other Friday off? What if I could do this? And you know, you can start to find what it is that you want. Maybe for you, it's about money, and that's what you're constantly going to be pushing. But the way you have to do that is by taking time to research, figuring out your own value, figuring out what you're worth in the market for the skill set you bring to the table, what it is that you love to do. And then bringing that to the table, asking your employer why the number that they're offering you is what you're worth to them, figuring out their perspective on everything you're doing, and making sure that when, when you end that discussion, you either got what you wanted financially, or you got to a better understanding, and you agree with what they were saying, and that they agree with what you were saying. That way, everyone understands and is clear on where you're trying to go financially, professionally, in your life, whatever it is, and that you understand where they're trying to lead you within your career and at the firm. And once you have that and you walk away from that discussion, you should hopefully be able to get more finances to help you reach these financial goals of yours sooner, but also build your career so that you can continue growing and working towards something greater. When you think about negotiations, Mike, have you ever thought about it in this particular way? And how has your way of negotiating changed from the first time you've done it to now? Yeah, so I guess to start, my my way of negotiating before or when I started uh, my jobs uh, in the, let's call it the, the real world, um, it was pretty crappy. I was, I've never been a very good negotiator, uh, up until probably recently in my life, honestly. And I think that that was partially because if you think about what happens when you, let's say, uh, you're leaving college and you're getting your job for your first time, I think that there's a lot of us out there as especially me at the time when I got my first job, 
I was looking around. I couldn't really find something that fit what I wanted. And I took, essentially, I took the first offer that was given to me, which was from a uh, previous boss that I had worked for a summer prior to that and during college. And I just took the job and I didn't really negotiate and I got what I got. And I was just happy to have a job. And that became reinforced for me in a bad way when the recession hit, because then I felt lucky just to have a job, which was true. I felt fortunate that I had one, but I didn't feel like I could negotiate any raises. I didn't feel like I could champion for myself. I didn't feel like I had the ability or uh, the authority to negotiate for myself. Like I wasn't able to, and I had my hands tied behind my back. I think as I've gone forward, especially in the most recent job that I had um, negotiated for. I actually did, I think, formally for the first time in my life, sit down and negotiate what I was worth and um, came to the table, not just with the, the, the idea of what I was worth, but also pushed back a little bit. Honestly, I, I had numbers that I had to hit for me and I had other values that I had to hit for me in terms of things that I wanted in, in that negotiation. And I guess two things come to mind. One is negotiation is not one or the other. It's not uh, just money. Sometimes it's uh, pay time off. Sometimes it's directly related to a job. Sometimes it's pay time off. Sometimes it's um, the required working hours, you know, whether you're working 40 hours or there's an expectation that you'll be working more than that or things like that. Um, what are your benefits outside of that? Do they do training? Do they do whatever? So it's not just, I think that was one big lesson that I learned for myself was that negotiation is not just one factor. It's usually several and it's trying to bring um, this, like you said, this understanding. So everybody knows what is being negotiated. It's all out on the table. And hopefully if you've done it correctly, the person who you're negotiating with thinks it's their idea. You know, they come to this, they come to the table thinking that, you know, what you've asked for is a good idea or it's even their idea. And one of the things that I want to bring up as a resource that could help people, Tim, that you actually introduced to me that I'm actually, I'm actually fairly surprised you didn't bring up was uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And Chris Voss, for anybody who's unfamiliar, is a FBI negotiator. And the theme of his book, it's a really well-written book in terms of just trying to help you understand how to negotiate. And in his world, he, he brings up this idea of um, never splitting the difference, which essentially means if he's negotiating a hostage situation and there's four hostages and uh, the the person who is taking them hostage says, "Oh well, we'll just uh, we'll just uh, give up uh, two of these hostages. Is that okay?" It, like in a real life and death situation, Chris is not in a position where he can say, "Okay, uh, yeah, sure, two is fine. You can keep the rest. It, you can't split the difference. You need all four. Um, so you need to know what's important to you. You need to know what you value, and it kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Tim. Always understanding those values, and then negotiating your value and what you're trying to get after and not really backing down. I think that that's been one lesson that I've, it was, it was this really, I had a proud moment when I was negotiating recently where I was like, when I actually stood my ground and said, no, I can't accept this. I need, I need this at the very least, you know, like this is where I want to be. This is where I need to be. Um, and you're using language that conveys that you're, you're not upset. You're not frustrated with the situation. You're not, it's a very, you have to stay objective. When you start to bring these things into that negotiation, you start to build up these little, these little wins for yourself. And I think that was important for me is you're not going to learn all these things all at once. You got to practice it. I know that you practice it a lot, Tim. And I wondered if you want to talk about that a little bit, because I know you've probably seen your negotiation skills grow as you get you put yourself in those uncomfortable situations and you have a comfort now with it that you didn't have before for me when i started negotiating the first time i was just so caught up in the moment because i was so i was like a deer in headlights i was so into 
listening to what the person had to say, and I was so into the idea of earning a little bit more. I thought, oh, a little bit more is great. That's great. You know, I never actually had the knowledge and the confidence to speak up and to talk back and say and ask questions, not just to say something, but to ask good questions and figure out why that number resonated with them. And then know on my own side why a different number resonates with me. And knowing that means that if my number is bigger and they're not going to budge on a number, then the alternative for me is more time because time is money and knowing the trade-offs. And to me, that's where everything really came in. Everything that I'm sharing today in this lesson is all about practice. It's about habit building and it's about knowing who you are as a person. It's not easy to get to a point where you can sit in front of someone and talk about getting more money from them. But I can say that for me, when I first got a raise, it was probably in the ballpark of like 5% or something like that. It was very, it wasn't even something that I would say was fair. Because when I started, I started well below the actual starting rate of an architect. And I didn't know that at the time. But when I got my first raise, that 5% meant I was getting 5% on well below what an architect should have started with, which means I, I started off behind everyone and I will always be there if I only got that percentage. So instead, the year after I did all of my research and I figured out what I would be worth at that time with the skills, the experience, and all of the things that I bring to the table. When I knew that number, I knew that it was well over 15% of a raise. Everyone hears that. They're like, oh, 15%. Oh my God, that's the best thing ever. Like, that's a lot. That's a great raise because you hear a percent. You're like, that's a lot. The average is like two to three or two to five. And so for me, I remember going into the room and talking it through. And I didn't just say it from the very beginning. I listened like I did the first time. I calmed down because I felt like my hands were getting clammy and, you know, the nerves set in like, how, how am I going to say this? Who am I to say this to this person? And when they were done making the offer of like three to 5%, I remember asking, well, where's that number come from? How'd you come up with that number? You know, not, not in an attitude, but just asking, where did it actually come from? And that's where you can see that no one has ever asked that question. Because the wheels started spinning and it's like you flip the deer and headlights to the other person. And it's not about making them feel as if they're in that position of being like, well, I don't have the answer. It's more about trying to understand, where did you even get that number? Is this a number you just pulled out of thin air? Because if it is, we have a lot more to talk about. And that's what the question implied. From that question, it led to some back and forth responses, which clearly made it made it it made it clear to me that the person didn't really know where the number came from so then the follow-up question was well did you know that through all of this research that i've done on different salaries across the world nationally internationally locally everywhere that these are the numbers and i i spelled it out these are the numbers for someone doing what i'm doing and right now i'm well below that and I need to make up for the lost time. Otherwise, all I could say is that my position here is unfair. What is it that we can do to get me to where I should have been and where I should be so that I can have a future that's as fair as everyone else's? And when I asked the question that way, that was the moment that I saw it's not just us who start off being bad at negotiating. It's even the people who are supposedly so skilled at it because they've been doing it every day as a partner at a firm. Because when I asked the question in that way, you can see that there was no clear answer, but the, they started to stumble on their words. That stumble was because they were trying to defend a number so that they can walk away the winner. And when I clearly broke that down and started to articulate it in a way that they couldn't really fight against, it would have come down to one of two things. I would have gotten what I was there trying to get, or I would have gotten the other answer that most people probably are afraid to hear, which is, well, this is all I could do, take it or leave it. To me, that's just a, well, you're still going to get what I originally was going to give you, but 
Now they also know where I come from. From that meeting, I got what I deserved and more. Because I articulated myself in such a way that they couldn't really say that it, the number I had come to the table with is actually the right number. The other thing that I did was not only did I did do the research outside of my position, I did the research within the firm itself. And I identified that in a firm where there are very few minorities, that all of the other people in the office were actually making more money than the minorities were. How did I come up with that number? Because I have good relationships with the people I work with, and I know how much each person is earning. Knowing how much each person is earning, I came to the table with that information at a different discussion, because now I truly knew it was unfair. I brought that to the table and said, hey, you know, there's something that is really discouraging me about the firm. And I'd like to get some insight from your perspective on this. I laid it out. I said everything I had to say. I put out the numbers. I didn't say who and what and where I got the information from. But I said, look, I know this about everyone because I've had discussions with my close friends here. Could you, let, could you explain to me why I'm earning less than the peers that I'm doing more than? And the moment that I asked that question, it was again that, that deer in headlights moment. And from that meeting, I got a big raise too. And when you think about a raise and you think about negotiating at an, at an office that you're an employee at, you have to approach it from a perspective that you might've started behind everyone else. Percentages don't mean anything. What means the most is knowing what you're worth and getting what you're worth. You have to know how valuable you are, the experiences you bring to the table, and get paid that amount. Because if you started off below everyone, percentages mean nothing. doesn't matter if you get 2% or 5%. What matters is that every year you grew, and every year you took on more responsibility, and you're bringing money into the firm. If that's you, you should be getting your cut of what you're bringing in for them. Otherwise, it's time to leave. And to me, that's where negotiating became fun. Because for me, it was about learning about how all these different partners are coming up with a number, asking questions to dissect how in tune is this firm in what I actually do for them? Do they actually know me as a person? Do they know that I know that they're not being fair? How do I get to a fair playing field? And now how do I disseminate that information to my peers so that we all can be equal? And so the only other thing that I'll add to that in a way that's related to this idea of negotiating is that there is a person named Ray Dalio who came out with a book called Principles. And in that book, he talks about this, merit this meritocracy and this idea that the way he runs Bridgewater Associates, which is an investing company, is that everyone is equal. Everyone voices their opinions, everyone voices their concerns, and everyone decides on everyone's pay. If you are the CEO, you should be earning X. Well, now everyone can vote. Do they think that that's fair? Is that a fair amount to be paying so-and-so? If it's not, well, then we have to revisit and lower it or increase it. And to me, that's a position that I would want to be in where people can tell everyone else how much I'm actually worth in terms of the value I'm bringing. And that's why I think negotiating is important because it goes beyond just trying to get a bigger number. It's actually about knowing yourself, knowing the value you're bringing and getting what you're worth and not settling for less. So to me, that's where negotiating has gotten more and more fun because it's about self-identification, knowing more about me, and knowing what it is that I'm bringing and knowing all sides of the coin before I even enter that room. Because the more knowledge you have, the more power you have to you. And having the financial ability to up and leave when you want, how you want, whenever you want is the biggest thing to me. Because that's the most powerful moment in anyone's life to be able to say, you know what? I disagree. And because we can't come to an agreement here, I'm going to hand in my letter of resignation and I'm going to move on. It was nice being here. It was good knowing you, but I need to be somewhere where I'm valued and where people see my value and to leave and move on. I haven't done that 
before. I haven't had to do that. And I don't ever think I would want to be in that position. But if that time comes, what I do want to know is that I'm financially capable of doing that. So that's why all of these mini lessons add up in that sense. Starting with knowing where you stand financially is the biggest one, because now you know the hurdles you'll have to face. And if you can determine the values that you have in life and you live within them, you can start saving money and either investing them, which is the next mini lesson, or going back and paying off those debts and getting rid of those hurdles. And to do it quicker, you have to negotiate and you have to know how to do it well. Get what you're worth and don't get anything less. And the biggest part of all of this is, just like Mike said, you have to continue practicing. It's about the continual practice of all of these things simultaneously. Don't let up on any of them because the more you practice them, the better you'll be at doing all of it. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add to that, Mike. Uh, No, I mean, just that I think really I want to reinforce that I personally have not been good with money in my past. And uh, if if I can be a little bit better, I think anybody can be a little bit better. And it's just about that, like you said, Tim, that practice and just trying to get better. Yeah, well, that's all I had for this lesson to my younger self, which is to have a financial plan. It's something that I had when I started, and I would always want to impart that on everyone else, especially designers who are entering the profession. Make sure you guys join us next time for our topic coming from Mike about becoming the hero of your own story. Sounds like a really good topic, and I can't wait to see you guys when you're there listening to it. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unpacking Design. Check us out anytime at unpackingdesign.com. And you can also find us on iTunes and anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Please remember to leave a review and share this podcast with someone you know. Mm -hmm.